This is Christ, Culture, and Coffee, a podcast designed to help equip Christians to be able to defend their faith and be confident in their faith. Hey everyone, welcome to Christ, Culture, and Coffee. I'm your host, Robbie Lashua, and I'm here with my amazing co-host, Tyler Hurley. How you doing, Tyler? Hey, I'm doing great. Thanks, Robbie. I think you're pretty amazing yourself, too. Oh, so. stop it. Get out of here. What are you sucking up for? <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> Dude, I, it's good to see I you. I mean, I, I don't know. Just... <laughs> here we go. But cool. We are super excited about this episode today because we're going to get more in-depth on textual criticism and yeah. manuscript evidence. Yeah, yeah this there's is going to so be much fun. Stuff. This one, yeah, this, yeah, this episode's excited. a little more technical than normal. You know what I mean? It's kind of, uh, it's a little bit more uh, in depth, and nerdy. But I think I think our listeners are going to enjoy it. So hey, I, I do want to mention this yes. too. If you're watching, um, so Tyler and I again aren't together in person. We're doing this over the internet, uh, and the reason for it is uh, I, I shared last week how I'd been sick. Turns out my wife and I had the coronavirus. So there it is. It actually happened. We actually had it. And so we've been quarantined. Uh, And the nice thing is we're both feeling great. uh, So we just praise the Lord for that. But uh, my quarantine's actually up on Friday. uh, So a few, few more days here and I'll be back on the streets uh, can't wait to get it back out in, yeah, in person sure. with, oh man, it's been a long time I've been in here. So anyway, just wanted to let people know that that's what's going on and that's why we're, we're filming like this, but we still wanted to do the show even though, uh, I've got issues and I had COVID and, uh, I'm glad it's over and I've got yeah. some antibodies now. So that's nice. Yeah. And you've been really a trooper sticking through it, especially like, like just through the past couple of weeks with being sick and everything, you've still been able to do the podcast. So uh, props to you, Robbie. Well done. Yeah. Well, thanks. Well, I felt pretty good on the days we've been recording. So that's been, uh, that's, that's been a good great. Thing. But, yeah. Well, let's get into it today. So Tyler, this is Christ Culture and Coffee. We love to start with a coffee tip. And this coffee tip that you yeah. have for us today, this is coffee snobbery at its finest. I mean, this is getting oh, yeah. into the details of making good coffee. So why don't you tell us what the coffee tip is for today? Yes. So uh, you hit the nail on the head when you're saying this is very coffee snob type because this is something like so precise. But but the coffee tip we have for you today is to ensure a great cup of coffee, you need to take into account your brew ratio. I'll say that again. Ratio. Yeah, the ratio of your coffee to water. That's what we're talking about when we say brew ratio. Okay, I like it. to, To ensure precision, you need to buy a countertop scale for your kitchen and you need to weigh the coffee grounds and the water. You need to weigh them, not just measure them, Robbie. Wait, you wait, wait, actually... hold on, hold on. Weigh them. Yes. Like on a food scale, you need to weigh them. Okay. And now in order to do that, so the thing is, is the reason you do this to weigh them instead of measuring, let's say you use tablespoons to measure your coffee, right? Okay. Well, the problem is that's inaccurate because depending on how coarse or fine the grind is, you'll have a certain volume of coffee that will change depending on that type of grind. Oh, that so makes sense. So yeah, so it's not, it, 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 one tablespoon can differ from another tablespoon depending on the grind or the bean or anything like that. Of course it can because of the different – yeah, exactly what you said. The different kind of beans, uh, the way you grind it, all of that takes into account, which we've talked plenty of times on this show. However, uh, this is more about the ratio of the actual grounds you have to water. And so by weighing it, it's uh, clearly what we have here through research is most professionals use a ratio of 115 to 117 
coffee to water volume. So one gram of coffee for every 15 to 17 grams of water, which is okay. for every eight ounce cup, which is 237 grams, you need 14, 16 grams of coffee. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. So, okay. So f- let me make sure I got this straight. So yes. the ratio to use is one gram of coffee for every 15 to 17 grams of water. Yes, exactly. Okay, so now I'm doing math in order to make coffee, Tyler. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but apparently the experts that are out there, the professionals uh-huh. who make coffee out there, say that this is the best brew ratio okay. to take into account of how good your coffee tastes. Well, hey, I'll, I'll give it a shot. I need to get one of those scales, though, so I can start weighing I out know. the, the well, water it makes and sense, the coffee. Just, yeah, yeah, because if you think about it, everything comes into account when you're making your coffee. Uh, like the amount of water you use, if you use too much, it could become a little more diluted or if you use too little, it's not, it's too strong, you know? So you got kind of have to have a balance of what you're going for with your coffee. It makes sense, man. No, it makes sense. Yeah. And to be precise like that, so you can have consistency over time. uh, Yeah. That's a good tip. I like that. It does. It does. So but anyways, that's your coffee tip for the day to all you coffee snobs out there. <laughs> so it's very, very important, I guess, by according to these experts, that you weigh your grounds and your water. I like it, man. Good now, tip. You are very welcome. Now, <laughs> let's get into the content for today because this I'm super excited about this. Yeah, this is pretty uh, fun this, stuff. So like just to preface yeah. it, so what we're talking about today because we're, we're in a series on New Testament reliability. And so what we're going to be talking about today is <clears throat> how do we know what the original New Testament said? Like that is the goal. How do we know that what we have in our Bibles today is the same thing that the Apostle Paul wrote and the Apostle Peter wrote. How do we know that we actually even have the New Testament? And so today we're just going to get super nerdy and we're going to talk about how do experts, how do scholars go about uh, ascertaining, that's a big word, ascertaining (laughs) what the New Testament actually originally said and do we know what it said? So here we go. I'm excited about this. Yes, yes. And so uh, the first off, first and foremost, we want to start off with the information that's interesting that a lot of people out there don't know. We do not have the original autograph, meaning the actual tangible handwritten documents of the New Testament. What are you talking about? We don't have like what Paul wrote? We have it, of course, but we have copies of copies. We don't have the physical piece of parchment or papyri or whatever Paul actually wrote on for the New Testament documents. And that goes for all books. We only have copies of copies. Now, a lot of people look at that and they think that that's a problem, right? Because you think, well, of course, like, why wouldn't you want to have the original, what the actual author did? Because someone could have messed with it, right? Sure. But the thing, the fact is we have so many copies, so many manuscripts. In fact, we have, and this is an estimated around 5,100 to 5,300 Greek New Testament manuscripts. And the Greek ones are important because the original autographs, the original handwritten parchments were Mm. written in Greek. However, you may have caught right there, I said 5,100 to 5,300. Now that's a range of 200 manuscripts. Yep, Right. that's right. Yeah, so Robbie, tell us, why can't we be more precise? Why is there such a big gap 
of how many manuscripts that we talk about here. Well, th this is interesting, Tyler, because in a lot of apologetics books that I've read over the years and that you've read, you know, they're given like the exact number as if we could even know the exact number. Recent right. scholarship has come out and talked about how we should probably, to be more accurate, give a range and not try to be exact. Because when we try to be exact, that number it becomes obsolete. There's a few oh, reasons sure. for it. Um, they're discovering new manuscripts all the time. And so new manuscripts come out and uh, they kind of uh, add to the old number. But we're also... It's also hard to be precise, and, and I want to give a couple of reasons why. So when people are looking at the Greek New Testament manuscripts, there are four different categories of manuscripts. There are what are called majuscules, what are called minuscules, what are called papyri, and what are called lectionaries, okay? Those are like the four categories of the Greek manuscripts. And I, I want to explain to you what each of those are. So majuscules are the earliest type of Greek writing uh, that are used in the Greek manuscripts we have. And this type of writing is all capital letters with no spaces in between words and hardly any punctuation at all. So this is interesting. Could you imagine reading a book in English that's all capital letters that there's no spacing between, right? That's yeah, what right. the majuscules <laughs> manuscripts are. And um, there's a lot of reasons for why they did this. One of the reasons was you could save on parchment because you only had a certain length of, uh, of scroll. And so by cramming it all together, you could fit a lot in there. And this was just a style that they wrote. It was a handwriting style. Capital letters, no spaces. Now, minuscules are different handwriting. Uh, they're in small letters, and they're more cursive-like. So it's not capital, all smushed together. It's different. Uh, the majority of Greek manuscripts that we have are minuscules, uh, but the minuscule style didn't really start appearing until the 9th century AD. So that's interesting. Mm. Papyri, uh, these are manuscripts that are made with papyrus. They're written on papyrus. So th this is actually where we get our word paper from, uh, is papyri. Uh, what papyrus is, is it's a reed plant that grows abundantly in Egypt, and uh, they cut thin strips of papyrus, and then they lay strips in two layers. They, they lay it down flat, like in a horizontal, and then uh, uh, vertical layers, and they let it dry out. And then they beat it down and they press it and they let it dry and they smooth it out and it becomes like a flat sheet of paper almost, right? It's, it's made of reeds, yeah. but it's similar, uh, it's similar to paper. It's super strong and it's very, very durable in dry climates. Um, and so they would take these sheets of papyri after they had, had processed them and then they'd glue them together and you could make scrolls out of papyrus. So we have a lot of papyri that we found in Egypt and other arid um, climates that have New Testament Greek writings on them. Um, but right. the papyri is about the type of uh, material they're written on. And then the fourth category are lectionaries. And lectionaries are Greek manuscripts that are arranged in sections of scripture uh, that are to be read in public worship service. So it's almost like an aid that you'd have at church, right, to read, hey, today we're all reading this. And people would get it out and they would, they would read from it. So now here's the thing, Tyler. There's these four different types of, of uh, Greek manuscripts. Do you notice a problem with these four categories? This and is really that? interesting, right? The, the problem is two of them are based on a writing handwriting style, 
One of them is based on what material it's made out of, and then one of them is based on the content and the arrangement of the content. So this is a problem for us, right? There we go. You can see these categories kind of overlap each other, right? Exactly, man. That's a huge point. Yeah, so there's like some papyri, uh, which is they're made out of papyrus, right? Yes. We, we didn't talk about what the handwriting style is on some papyri. Well, some of yes, them are majuscules, right. right? So do you count it as papyri or do you count it as majuscule? Do you see the problem? Yeah, which one is it? That's a that's a very important question when it comes to counting these. It is, man. And even with like lectionaries, like some lectionaries are majuscule, some lectionaries are minuscule. So do you count it as a lectionary or do you count it as minuscule? Like Yeah, that's right. So it gets really interesting when you get into the details of how they count these and are we double counting things? Um, another way that sometimes stuff gets double counted is that uh, there's manuscripts that have been disassembled and sold in pieces to different buyers around the world, right? Um, so it's it's really difficult to know if some manuscripts are actually part of another manuscript, right? So sometimes mm. a manuscript could get counted twice. Like if I found like a codex, a book of Greek New Testament writings, and I, I was like, I want to make a lot of money off this. So I sell one sheet to you and one sheet to a guy in Africa and one sheet to a guy in Europe. Y- you basically could count those as three different manuscripts, but they're not. They're all one yeah. manuscript. It's just you don't know. So sometimes we count things uh, twice because of issues like that. And then in addition to that, some manuscripts have been lost accidentally. Um, there's like records of a certain manuscript and then the, the libraries that house them can't find it anymore. And so there's like pictures of lost manuscripts. It's like, I don't know where it went. Um, so that happens. Um, but also sometimes people steal the manuscripts because they have – like tremendous religious experience, right? Or because they have like monetary value. And so there've been right. times where people have stolen manuscripts and then resold them and they get counted as a new manuscript, which they shouldn't have because we already counted them. So to say, hey, here's the precise exact number of New Testament manuscripts we have is really a bad idea because of all these factors. But oh, within yeah. that, it's safe to say we have somewhere between 5,100 to 5,300 Greek New Testament manuscripts. Right. Does right. that make and sense? That's all, yeah, of course it does. And that's important to remember uh, because what's interesting about this is all these manuscripts are not necessarily equal to each other either. Like, yeah, that's what a big saying. point. Yeah, like so, some of them contain the entire New Testament. Like, in, for example, the Codex Sinaiticus, where it literally documents the entire New Testament, that we yeah. have that. Uh, but then there are other that are just fragments that only have one or two words on them, like the John uh, Ryland Papyri or P52 mm-hmm. document, which is literally like what? Like just a couple inches long and it's got just a couple words on it. Yeah, I think like, it's two. I think the exact measurements are it's about two inches by three inches. So And okay, it has some of the Gospel of John on the front and the back. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's like, but that's still, that's still a manuscript. Yeah. That little credit card size is a manuscript. And then the whole book of the new Testament is those are each counted as a manuscript. Yeah. It's counted as just one. So it's like, you have some that are, uh, but then, then again, you have some that are older than others, even though they contain less. So it provides more credibility. So you have to take all these things into account. And so it's important. We realize that we don't count manuscripts just on their num- numerical value, but instead weigh the evidence that we find contained in the manuscripts. That's a huge point, Tyler, because a lot of, again, with apologetics, a lot of people like 
act like because we have a certain number, it means it's true. It doesn't. Yeah. And just for the fact of having a certain number doesn't even mean we can know what it says. We have to we have to look at how good the manuscripts are and weigh the evidence that's inside of them, right? And so I think that that's a huge point, bro. Is all manuscripts are not created equal, right? Some of them yes, are great yes. pieces of evidence, and some of them contain a few words that are nice, but really how helpful is it, you know? So yeah, that's, that's exactly. an important thing to think about when we're trying to figure out what did the original New Testament say. Yes. And so what's important noting all of that that we just said uh, is to it kind of help you understand textual criticism methods. And we're going to get into that a little bit right now. Yes. Uh, so in order to attempt to get to the original text, like what the actual autographed handwritten documents had said, New Testament textual criticism has developed methods of comparing the manuscripts with one another and concluding on what the original said. So an example, they're taking, like we said, the P52, like the the little John fragment, the little words that they get from that, and they see that it's older than, uh, like, than like we said, the Codex Sinaiticus. So they can compare and see, okay, well, we've had those words from John way longer than we've had it here. So we can believe that it's more right? Yeah, that's so, what they do. And they, they kind of even will take yeah. like, so they'll take all of the... You know, let's say like John 18, because they've actually done this. Every single piece of John 18 that we've ever found in Greek New Testament manuscripts, they have compared them all with one another to see where our difference is and how the differences come about. And so they're attempting to figure out what was the original that all these copies have been copied from and copied from copies of. Right. That's yeah. so important to know. And so that's that's kind of what we're trying to get into with all this. It's uh, there are many, many different uh, differences within these Greek manuscripts. And but these differences are called textual variants. Yeah. Textual right? variants are big because when we start to compare all of these, bro, um, there's differences. And so yes. they actually keep track of the variants of the differences because we need to find out which one's wrong and which one is right. Yes, exactly. And that's important to know because I don't want to be believing in a lie, right? And that's what the whole uh, goal of this podcast is in general, too. We're trying to expose the truth, uh, not just in uh, secular the secular world, but also in the biblical world. And we're trying to apply apologetics to Scripture and show uh, that there, the variance actually helps us understand the truth, what was actually written, like I said, the handwritten autograph documents. Uh, and so with that, it is safe to say that there are around 500,000, and again, that's half a million, 500,000 text variants among our New Testament Greek manuscripts, not including spelling differences. That's huge, now, right? With, that sounds like a lot, yeah, man. Yeah, it's huge. It does. And it should. And some people get intimidated by that or scared because it's like, wow, like so many variances. And we're going to get into those and what they're actually about. Uh, but Bart Ehrman, and I know we've talked about him quite a bit on this show, uh, he's a, a, a non Christian atheist, kind of agnostic leaning atheist, mm-hmm. who uh, kind of provides some evidence for scripture. And it, he's a New Testament scholar. And so what he points out is that there are only about 138,020 words in the New Testament, uh, which are, which is insane because that means that there are half a million textual variances to the actual words that are in the New Testament, meaning we have 
so much more variance than the actual context of the words. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of a problem, right? Sense? There's more variance than there are words in the New Testament. And he, exactly. he's, I've heard him say this uh, in like yeah. debates before and in his books. Yeah, he loves talking about that. Like it's yeah, supposed to so scare us or something. Yeah, exactly. And well, it does to some people when you first look at that at face value. And so, uh, but what's important to note about that is how scholars go about text criticism. That's how we need to look at this thing. Yep. So let's dive into that, Tyler. Let's talk about, okay, so we got all these manuscripts. We're trying to compare them with one another and we see that there's differences and variation with words and word order and all this stuff. How do we go about, what are some general rules that textual critical scholars use to determine what the original said. Yes, yes. So uh, some of those rules that we have, one is to determine the reading that would most likely give rise to others. Uh, And with that, it's just understanding, uh, like, through the reading, what would most likely make make the most sense, right, with what they're reading. It's like when you're analyzing the text, like what does it say, right? Yes, yeah, there's an, an example of that, and we'll, we'll talk yeah. about this in detail next week, but an example of that would be um, in 1 John, uh, I think it's chapter 5, I, I should know this, but I think in 1 John 5, there's like this uh, textual variant that talks about there's three, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and it's like a trinity... Uh, term it's trinity yes. a trinity formulation well we don't find that in a lot of other manuscripts and it, it isn't original it got added later but they'll determine why would this get added would it get subtracted or would this type of a thing get added and it makes more sense that it would get added because people are trying to clarify the trinity versus yeah. oh i'm going to actually take that out of the bible scribes wouldn't do that right so the most likely reading would be that they added this definition to bolster the doctrine of the trinity which yes, originally wasn't there that. yeah thank you for explaining that i think yeah. yes that's absolutely per- like that is exactly what that is uh, and so uh, next what they do is uh, they take the, the more distinctive reading and they usually prefer that over another, meaning like when you read something that has more detail or something that is a little bit more distinctive and like specific, they'll pick that out of one that's less specific, less detailed oriented. Yeah, because uh, and then, the general idea with that is that a scribe, because the people who are hand copying these care about the New Testament. That's the only reason they're doing it, right? Oh, yeah. And so they're right. not going to make things um, less distinctive, right? That would be to take away from scripture. They wouldn't do oh, that. Oh, of course it would. Yeah. So it makes sense that they wouldn't take away from distinctiveness, but they would um, more often try to clarify it. And so if it's more distinct, that's usually the preferred reading because they would probably simplify it, not complicate it. Yeah, it's a good general rule. And all these are general rules. Sometimes some of them don't work when you're comparing things in certain texts. And you have to say, okay, this one doesn't apply here because of this, this and this. But these are the general rules that they use when determining it. Yep. Yeah, exactly. And that's perfect. And then uh, and then another factor that they take into consideration is uh, which of the readings that they're comparing is shorter. And typically they'll typically not in all cases, but they will favor the shorter reading because if it's more concise and more to the point, uh, they want that to be the one that goes through into the the text criticism. Uh, like, yep. just, it makes more sense because it's more specific. Like we said, distinct, specific, and more on top topic and context. That's what they're looking for. Short yeah. and simple. 
right? Yeah, and the and the the idea there is that a scribe who believes that the Bible is the word of God wouldn't take away God's word, but they'd probably be more prone to add it add to it to clarify things. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And so also another one factor that they take into consideration is they also determine which reading is more appropriate in its context. So of mm-hmm. meaning what they'll look at, they'll look at the literary context based on the passages around it. Uh, they're going to look for grammatical uh, u- uses and phrases, and then they'll also look for spelling errors and historical context. Yeah, even yeah. so if you think about that one's pretty easy because like if somebody's writing yeah. to, like if Paul's writing to the church and he's writing right. like, and he's using all these plural we, 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 you know, uh, wording and verbiage, and then it all of a sudden switches to like third person or something. It's weird in the context. Yes, and they right. can see, oh, that's probably a mistake because it could be this. And this version says we still, but this one changed it to something else. And so all of those factors come into it. Um, but that's what's nice about all of this is this is when we're comparing it with all the different manuscripts. It's not like we just have one manuscript. We compare all of right. them and we can see, oh man, a whole bunch of them have this reading. These ones have this reading. We can think through the time period and see when this this mistake derived like you can see it happening with a lot of them so kind of kind of interesting yeah yes and that's exactly what they do and so with that too they also examine just like you said parallel passages for any differences and they determine why they may appear and that just kind of that last one is a kind of a general oversight of all of text criticism because really that's what they're doing the entire time they're taking these parallel passages ones that are the same they're similar mm-hmm. and they're comparing to see what differences are, are there and they're saying okay should we add or remove things from the biblical text here mm-hmm. based off of these manuscripts and that's kind of what they're doing that's all that text criticism is it's comparing documents looking for mistakes things that were included that weren't uh, and they're just kind of editing it down and trying to clear out any error, any human error that may be getting in the way of the actual text and yep. the message that was behind it. Yep, that's right, man. And some of these um, mistakes that we see happen are unintentional changes to the text. We also see intentional changes where scribes yeah. add stuff, um, but we also have like a whole list of unintentional changes. And we can't talk about every single detail of text criticism on the show, but we did want to share uh, some of these unintentional changes, which are really interesting. So a few of them that that happen so often that they have categories for these um, are things like mistaken letters. So sometimes in the text, there's similar looking letters that are sometimes interchanged for other letters, especially when you're using the majuscule manuscripts, the capital letters, right? Some of them look similar and you could see how a scribe would accidentally write the wrong one <laughs> because it looks similar to something else. You know, for like us, like if, you, if you're writing an, a V and a W, the capitals, they look pretty much the same, right? It's just in, in English, it's just one stroke different. And so right, an yeah. M and an N, one stroke different. And so sometimes <laughs> <laughs> there's words like that that have been changed because they made a mistake of similar looking letters. Uh, there's another uh, uh, unintentional change category that's called homophony. And this is substitution of similar sounding words. So this mm. is really interesting and it's difficult to explain on a podcast without diagrams and showing people pictures and all this stuff. But in Romans 5.1, we, we have this happening. So Paul uses the word echomen, which means we have, 
Um, but he, but it also sounds just like this other word, echo men. That means let us have or we may have. And there's only one Greek letter different between those two, and it's what type of an O in English, what type right. of an O you're using. Echomen, echomen. They sound very similar, <laughs> but there's one letter different that means there is a different, uh, it has a different meaning of, of what the word is. Either we have or let us have, we may have. So this yeah, kind of thing happens where, and I could see myself doing that. You know, you read it, you say it in your head, and then you go to write it and you write what it sounds like versus the exact wording of what it is. Yeah, right. And well, not only that, though, but you got to think, too, something that a lot of scholars were probably dealing with at the time is when you're looking at these manuscripts, the, some of them are a little older, a little worn. Maybe as like one of those letters is not as easy to tell if you're looking at like an O versus an sure. E or like a U or you know what I mean? Like yeah, something like that. Yeah, there's all those types of things that can happen. And it is crazy, yeah. too, because we even see like some some manuscripts, scribes write in the margins, like they write notes or they write theology or they <laughs> write extra right. stuff and then like a generation or two later we see those notes work their way into the text um so there, it's it's really a funny science to do text criticism like this um so that's yeah substitution of similar sounding words uh another another one is called uh heplography and this is an omission of a letter or a word and it's usually due to a similar letter or word uh, in the context. So you see a, mm. a word that ends the same, your eyes kind of skip over it, and you don't get the next word that has the same ending. And so you omit uh, a letter of a word or a similar letter in a word or context. Uh, another thing is called didography. And this one's easy to remember because it's like ditto, right? Like two. So when there's a letter or a word that's been written twice uh, rather than once... And uh, we actually have an example of this possibly, possibly happening in right. Mark chapter three, verses 14 through 16. And you're going to, you have that, right, Tyler? You're going to read that for us? Yeah, yeah. It says, and he appointed the 12 so that they could be with him and he could send them out to preach and to have the authority to cast out demons. And he appointed the 12, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. Yeah, and then the, it goes on to name the other disciples. But do you see how in verse 14 it says, and he appointed the 12, and then in verse 16 it says, and he appointed the 12. Yes, I see that. This may be a example of didography where the scribe was writing down things and he accidentally wrote the same phrase two times. Does that make yeah, sense? Yeah, I mean, I've done that. Yeah, I've done that when reading before. You ever do that? Like oh, you yeah. read it. You're reading it one line and then you try to go down, but your eyes do a little like skip and you end up going back and starting over the same line again. Yep, exactly. I've done that before or, or vice versa. <laughs> and so that, yeah, that makes total sense. Like, of course that that would happen. Yep, exactly. So that's didography. Um, there's another one that's called uh, uh, meti metathesis or metathesis. metathesis and right. it is uh, the reversal in order of two letters or words. Um, so that one is, uh, uh, interesting too. So when there's, there's two of the same letter in a word, sometimes they get omitted or they get reversed. Um, and so an example of this is in John one forty two when it's talking about, uh, Simon, uh, Peter, and it calls him Simon, son of John. Well, right. it says John, but some manuscripts, uh, have omitted one of the N's from the Greek word John, which makes it into Jonah. 
Right. And so that's a difference, right? <laughs> so again, nothing huge, but when you omit two letters next to each other, because John has two N's next to it in that verse, and then you change it for one, it means something different. Right, right. Uh, there's another uh, unintentional mistake called fusion, which is where there's incorrect word division that results in two words joined as one. Um, so Mark 1040 has an example of this. And in um, Greek, the word is al and ois, um, which means but for whom when you separate them, al, ois, right? But for whom. But if you can join them and you smush them together, it's alois, which means for others. So it means right. something different. And you can imagine when they were writing in the majuscules, which you remember are the capital letters all smushed together with no spaces, the scribes have to make a judgment call on where the word ends and the new one begins. And so that's where we have some issue with, with, these, uh, with these words getting smushed together or separated not at the right spot. Yeah, well, like you said earlier, too, Robbie, when we were talking about the way that the text was written, a lot of them, because of the limited amount of space they would have on a scroll sometimes, is they would they, there wouldn't be any spaces. It would all be written together, right? Yep. Yeah, so yep. that's exactly why you would have that. I could completely understand why someone would have an issue of separating some words if there's no space between at all. Yeah, exactly. That would happen in English if we did that. We, we could see it as, as a couple of different words. So. Yeah, exactly. It makes complete sense. Yep. So that is interesting. Um, another thing that uh, so that's that's uh, fusion. That's when there's incorrect word division that results in two words getting smushed together as one. And then the opposite of that is fission, which is an incorrect word division that results in one word written as two. So we see this in Romans seven fourteen, uh, where the word should be uh, oidomen, which is we know. But if you split it into two words, it can be oida men, which means on the one hand, I know. Mm. So that makes a difference. It should be we know because the context of what Paul's talking about and how he's been talking in Romans 7. It is we know. Plus, I don't think he uses the on the one hand and then later on on the other hand. And so the on the one hand doesn't make sense in that passage. Um, right, so that's right. that's an interesting one. And then there is another one that I wanted to mention, last one, and it's called homoiotelutan, six-syllable word, homoiotelutan, yep, which in Greek it means a like ending. So this is when there is an omission (coughs) of words because there are two words that are the same or two phrases that are the same on both sides of the word or phrase. Okay, so if I said something like, um, I went to my house and at my house, so there's house and house, right? Right. So sometimes you're reading that along, I went to my house, and then you, you write house, and then you look back up and you see the second house, and you just start from that house, and you omit the and at my that's in between house and house. Right, yeah. That is what this is, okay? So an example of this is in 1 John uh, 2.23. It has the phrase, has the Father in it twice, and it should have that in there. But sometimes uh, there is uh, the mistake of omitting the words that are in between the has the Father and has the Father. And so we see that happen in First uh, John two twenty three, where right. some mistakenly omit that and don't repeat it twice 
because their eyes kind of skipped over it and they just recorded the second has the father or the Tan Patera Ekoi, Eke. So um, it's really interesting. So again, hyper, super nerdy, geeky stuff, but this is how you do text criticism. You get into the nitty gritty of the passages and you say, okay, what was the original reading? What are the yeah. rules? What mistakes have been made? And how can we come to the original text that is available if we synthesize and we compare and we do the science of text criticism? Yeah, exactly. And then now the importance of textual variance is is very important to know. Like the the, the fact is these should not cause us alarm. Well, the, but like, Tyler, the, there's 500,000 of them. That sounds like a lot, right? Yeah, right, right. Well, that's the thing. Like at first you, that scares you like and that that's fine. It, like seeing that number that like that's okay that that shakes you up. But the thing is is it should not cause you alarm. Uh, the reason why is because the fact that we have so many manuscripts with so many variants also means that we have a lot of data with which to look out to work out the variant readings, meaning like we can look through those 500,000 variants uh, with the manuscripts we have now. We can compare it and see like we have the right manuscripts, like we have the original intended message. But like, well, the fact that the fact that we can recognize the variants means we can recognize what's not a variant. Exactly. Yeah. And with the variants, we can figure out most probably what the original said. Like, yeah. That so is, even that's, with the variants, that's exactly right. Even with them, we can do this text criticism thing to come to what the original must have said. Yeah, of course. Like, obviously, say you had like a bunch of uh, just random letters that you you had sent from your grandma, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you made copies of it or something that you kept cherished. But uh, like, if you notice that there's differences from all of them, and you're comparing it like to any letter in English or something, you can see differences today that would compare, and m maybe they'd be wrong, but you could compare them together and you could see what the original context said. This, they did the same thing with Greek, yep. and they're going through it now like it, to get us the text that we have today in the New Testament. So by looking at the variants, looking at the errors or the things that are like different in each of these manuscripts and comparing, we can see what the original text said. And that's why it's so important that we have all these variants because they tell us what the, the truth of what we have right now. And it also, I think it attests to the accuracy overall of the New Testament. Yeah, it really does, man. And the other thing is this, a lot of the variants don't matter. Right, like, they don't, like yeah. they are so, so unimportant, easy to recognize. Like, like for instance, like here's an example. So if you, if you were doing text criticism with a recipe that your great, great, great grandma had passed down, right? Let's yeah. say it's some recipe for like sourdough bread or something. And you know, it comes from three or four generations back. And then your grandma has like a handwritten copy of it. And your, uh, your great aunt, you know, your grandma's sister has a handwritten copy of it. And then your great uncle has a handwritten copy of it. And one of them got smudged cause they accidentally spilled some water on it when they were doing some dishes. And then your parents have copies of it and your aunts and uncles all have copies of it. And your great aunt's kids have all these copies of it. And there's all these copies of the same recipe. Well, the one that has a word smudged out can easily be figured out what that word should have been by looking at the other ones that have that word in them, right? Yes, yes, exactly. And even if some punk kid, let's say yourself, went and you changed the recipe and instead of it having, you know, baking soda in it, you changed it to yeast just to mess it up or something, you know, even if you intentionally changed it, we could go and compare it with the other ones and we could figure out, oh no, originally it must have said this because 10 out of the 11 say this and this one has yeah. a red marker through it and it's scratched off, <laughs> right? We could 
could we could figure yeah, that right, out. Yeah, right, right. That's what's going on with the New Testament. And so a lot of the variants are so insignificant, they're unimportant, that even in New Testament Greek uh, textual critical studies, they don't even bring them up because they're so easy to spot and they're trivial and they don't make any sort of difference for what the original had said because we can spot what it didn't say. Uh, Peter Gurry, yeah, yeah. who he's at Phoenix Seminary, he's doing a lot of great work in text criticism. Um, he makes this really important um uh, percentage. Uh, so I, I don't have time to explain it all. If you want to read a great book on this kind of stuff, it's this book right here, Myth, Myths and Mistakes in New Testament Textual Criticism, which was edited by Elijah Hickson and Peter Gurry, who's at Phoenix Seminary. Uh, and they've done some really cool work on talking about how many of the variants are important, right? And he says... Uh, through some like kind of groundbreaking calculations that the number of variants that might be meaningful affect the translation uh, to affect the translation of the Bible is somewhere between 0.3% to 2.8%. Right. So think about that 03 to 2.8% of the half million variants are even somewhat significant. So so now all variants aren't created equal, right? We have to weigh the variants just like we weigh the manuscripts to see how significant they are. Uh, Most of the variants are trivial and don't change anything and don't matter, and we know what the wrong ones are. But among the 03 to 2.8% that are somewhat important, we even need to look at those ones and see, okay, these ones are significant in the sense that they're not easy just to throw out as unoriginal. But even among these ones that are important, which ones actually may affect doctrine or ethical living in the, the text and which ones really are trivial and don't affect the meaning of the text. So even among the small percentage that are significant, we even get a smaller percentage that make a difference when it comes to understanding wow. Scripture. Yeah, so many do not have affect the meaning of the text at all. Like that's exactly. crazy when you look at that comparison. Because, uh, however, the thing is, we want to dig deeper into these variants because they help us resolve like text criticism issues that do have a, a, an effect and meaning on the text and doctrines and Christianity. But uh, again, like that's such a small percentage. It's crazy how it really the New Testament that we have today isn't really that affected by all the variants. Yeah, it, it's not affected at all. Uh, not at all. It's not affected very much. And this is where we want to make a distinction because a lot of times in the past um, apologists would say the variants don't matter because they're so insignificant what percentage of them matters however there are some variants that matter and we want to look at those and we want to like you said we want to do good text criticism to figure out what does this probably originally say and what bearing does it have on certain doctrines or certain beliefs and so we don't want to just because it's a small percentage throw those out no they're kind of significant so we do want to look at them Uh, I want to read a quote from Peter Gurry. This is just a great quote. He says, It is best to admit that, in relatively rare cases, variants really do have some bearing on doctrines and ethical practices of the Christian faith. But none of these doctrines or ethical practices is established from these disputed texts. So what he's saying is there are some variants that are significant that change the text in such a way that what it is saying it doesn't mean the same thing. 
However, we're not building our doctrine based on one verse and one variant for pretty much any doctrine, right? Like we don't we don't say, oh, the Trinity is based on only one verse. No, it's not. It's a whole bunch of verses, right? right Jesus' yeah. deity isn't based on one verse. It's based on a whole bunch. That's why it is a doctrine. So the variant may change the meaning of the text in some places, which we'll look at next week. But we don't build doctrine based on one verse or one variant. So when it's all said and done, and this is what I think is mind-blowing, Tyler. Right. When we've synthesized all of the texts we have and we have done text criticism on it, our modern Greek New Testament, after all text criticism is done, gives us a 99% accurate reading of what the original autographs said. Mm. Now, this does not mean that some variants are not important, but it does mean that we can rest assured that we have an accurately transmitted New Testament from the time of the Apostles up till the modern day. And yes, I think that, that, that is, is just so, amazing. Yes, yes, that's so huge. Like, it's very important to, uh, to note that. And that, that was the whole goal of uh, this topic for today was to um, just show you guys that the New Testament is reliable because of text criticism. And that's when the, what this whole series has been through. Like, we can just see through, through text criticism that the New Testament is reliable. We have enough data to compile what the original handwritten autograph said mm -hmm. to 99% accuracy. And it's just, it's super cool that we well, have all of this. And let's make sure we're, we're distinct with this. Yes. Just because we can know that we have what they wrote doesn't mean what they wrote is right. true. Absolutely. So when you say it's reliable, you mean that it's reliably transmitted. We have what they wrote. It could all be a bunch of fairy tales and lies. But you can't yeah, right. say that we don't even have what they wrote. Some people like to say that, right? We don't even know what the Apostle Paul wrote because it's been translated through so many generations and iterations. That's yeah, wrong. You know what? We yeah, know well, what it says. And reliably, yeah. we know what it says. Now, is it true? Well, that's a different thing, right? <laughs> right so right. we figure that out we with different too. Yeah, that's something we need to make a distinction of too. Is like like the difference between transmitted and translated. Like those are different things. Like uh, which we, we've described before on the show. But when something's yeah. transmitted, it's directly copied word for word exactly what it's saying from one to another. Translated is changing from a language entirely and trying to have to figure out a different wording for something. Yeah, a lot of but, people like on pop like. Um, yeah. Like a, like a common objection to this is it's been translated from Greek into Latin, into Coptic, yes. into English, into Spanish, into Chinese. It's been translated so many times you can't know what it originally said. They're mis like what you said is so true. They are, they're mistaking transmission for translation. Transmission yes. means it's been passed along through time accurately. And it has because we go back to the Greek and we do text criticism and we transmit it. And then we translate it from the Greek into Chinese or the Greek into English or the Greek yes. into Spanish. So people do mistake that all the time. They say it's been translated so many times, but what they're really talking about is transmitted and we exactly. need to make that distinction and then show them it has been transmitted accurately and it's reliable. We have, bro, 99% accuracy. Yeah. We have <laughs> what they wrote originally and yeah. you can't dispute that. That's the crazy thing to me. The science is so good. It's indisputable. Yeah. That, that that's the case. 
99% accurate reading of what the original authors wrote, which it just gives me confidence that, man, it seems like somebody's behind this, giving us this accurate <laughs> depiction um, through right. the work of text scholarship and obviously through the Greek manuscripts that are preserved for us to investigate. It seems like God wanted us to be able to know what they originally wrote. Yeah, yeah, and that's super great and exciting. But uh, thank you for joining us today on Christ Culture and Coffee and being a part of the podcast. Uh, make sure you tune in with us next week, though, because we are going to be looking into some of the most difficult variants in the New Testament and see what kind of bearing they have on Christianity. Yeah, that's uh, going to be fun, man, because some of the— yeah. I, I don't want to mess people up, but we got to be accurate with what's original and what got added that might not be and what are the, what are the difficult passages. So that's going to be really fun next week. Yeah, we're super excited, so make sure you join us for that. Um, also, make sure, if you aren't already, that you go and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Uh, we're coming out with new content on there weekly, so make sure you come and be a part of that. And also, we're going to be uh, making posts on our social media accounts all the time. For those of you who might not know, we have a Twitter account now, so go ahead and follow us, Christ Culture Coffee. And on Twitter, Instagram, and we're also on Facebook. Yep. Uh, so make sure you go and join us on all of our social media platforms and YouTube. Subscribe to stay up to date on everything that we're doing. So thank you so much for joining us today and being a part of the podcast with us today. Uh, we'll see you next week as we talk about text variants. Thanks for listening to Christ, Culture, and Coffee. If you liked this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe to help us reach more people.